that the question, what kind of cities do we want to live in? How do we want our cities to be? Cannot be divorced from the question of what kind of people we want to be. What kind of humanity we wish to create amongst ourselves and how we want to create it. And it is that mutual constitution of the city and who we are and what we are that is something which is, I think, again, very important to reflect upon. This is The City, an hour dedicated to a critical discussion of urban issues. And welcome to the program here on CITR 101.9 FM, CITR.ca, and syndicated on CJSF 90.1 FM, CJSF.ca, and available as a podcast at thecityfm.org. I'm Andy Longhurst. We've covered everything from arts and culture, neighborhood change, urban indigenous land struggles, social and political movements, and much more. We have brought you interviews with diverse urban thinkers, activists, politicians, commentators, including renowned urban sociologists Harvey Mollich and Loic Leconte. Longtime Vancouver anti-poverty activist Jean Swanson and Vancouver uh, City Councilors Andrea Reimer, Adrian Carr, and former City Councilor Ellen Woodsworth. Also striking UBC teaching assistants, among many other guests. These are the very people shaping our urban landscapes. And this is a special fun drive show asking you to support independent radio. This is the city. Stay with us. composed this song and we wanted to sing this while we're heading to our last little spot here for a while. She titled this song Paddle to Battle and we'd like to dedicate this song to the runners that are going to be doing a little bit of a job later on today. We'd also like to ask everyone to have a prayer for our relatives. This one that composed this song, her mother went through open heart surgery. 
They had to revive her again yesterday. So we're asking everyone while we're singing the song to have a prayer for our respected loved one from the Solo Nation, our Auntie Reedy Green, well-respected person in the in the cultural people of the Coast Salish. So with the song, like to give everyone that strength, especially our runners later on. She said this, this song's a canoe, canoe song. She sings it when she's out on the war canoe. We'll sing it for our ones that are going to be running towards the, towards the north and towards the south here later on. We'd like to thank everyone for your support. And sounds from the Musqueam First Nation here in Vancouver, and that was that was content going back to August fifteenth um, of two thousand twelve, and that was a special podcast. One hundred days later, Musqueam and the struggle to protect land and cultural history, and this was an ongoing struggle in South Vancouver in the Marple neighborhood um, on the burial site, the ancient burial site of Susnam, um, sacred to the Musqueam people, and this is a story that. Um, was and still is very significant and it's something that um content that um i'm very pleased to bring you with the city and and that's why we're here today on citr 101.9 fm this is the annual fun drive and um we're broadcasting here instead of uh, news 101 uh, due to a live broadcast on the usual time uh for the city tuesdays five to six here on citr um, but nonetheless, I want to thank you. Um, if you're tuning in expecting News 101, um, they've graciously allowed the city um, to run a live show during this time for the special fun drive week. And I want to urge you to call in and support CITR Radio. Um, we do a lot of unique uh, programming, a lot of independent programming, a lot of very critical programming that you're not going to find other places. And the city uh, is one of those examples. So if um, if you're if you appreciate hearing uh, that critical content um, that you're not going to hear other places, if you 
appreciate hearing about indigenous land struggles in the city. Um, the Musqueam example at Susnam is something that, um, you know, was as as a as a settler Canadian in this country, a very significant one and very moving to see um, how we wouldn't necessarily treat um, a cemetery of of um, Anglo Canadians or or Anglo Europeans in a particular way, but this is a burial site that was up for redevelopment and up for condo development, and so this is coverage that I thought. Um, is really important for people to hear and not to provide it in, in sound bites and short little snippets, um, but to really examine some of these issues, talk to people, talk to Musqueam elders. And on that very podcast, we talked um, with uh, Musqueam's or heard from Musque- Musqueam Cecilia Point, um, spokesperson for uh, this land struggle, uh, Delbert um, uh, Guerin, an elder from Musqueam. We also heard from Jenny Kwan, a provincial MLA, Scott Fraser, the Am- Aboriginal relations critic for the NDP, uh, former Cope City Councillor Ellen Woodsworth. So we, we work to provide a lot of uh, content on the ground that you don't necessarily hear uh, from CBC or from commercial radio, and that's uh, something that I think uh, CITR uniquely provides. And Increasingly, we don't have that. So please, if you support independent radio, if you pr- support independent uh, news programming, public affairs programming, please call in 604-822-8648, 604-822-8648. Um, support, show that you care about this type of programming. Um, I'm here um, on a volunteer basis producing this content, but it's not possible without you supporting CITR, which provides the very infrastructure um, through which we can produce this type of programming. And um, having staff here costs money. Um, I may volunteer my time as a programmer, hosting and producing the city, uh, but there are staff here working to ensure that this content um, is available and gets out there, um, that we have people um, able to curate um, and, and uh, take in music and, and get it onto the air and help our programmers find great content. Um, also, having staff to help assist with production of spoken word programming and news programming. This all takes money, and I just want to urge you to support uh, CITR. And over the course of the hour, uh, we're going to revisit some of the highlights um, from the last year. Again, this also marks one year of the city being on the air, and I've had tremendous feedback and tremendous support and a committed listenership. And I just want to ask you if you appreciate this content. And I try my very best to uh, cover a variety of issues um, and, and do it in a way that explores issues in a critical and progressive manner, providing that progressive analysis that you don't necessarily get um, on CBC radio or commercial radio, where you only get little sound bites, um, but really working and unpacking a lot of these issues that are not simple. So if you support that, please call 604-822-8648. You can also donate online, citr.ca slash fundrive. Um, this is listener-supported content, and you make this possible. So please, again, call. And that number, again, is 604-822-8648. Um, and I want to hear from you. And um, we have some wonderful uh, CITR um, prize packs. If you donate um, at the $30 level, you end up with a Friends of CITR card. And above that, um, there is a whole lot of uh, different swag that can come your way. So you can also check that out at CITR.ca. But I'll quickly just give you a sense of what small ways that we can tell you how much we appreciate uh, your support of CITR. At the $75 level, you can get a Friends of CITR card plus a Radioversary t-shirt. We're also celebrating 75 years 
of CITR Radio here at the station, and that's 75 years of independent um, alternative programming that you don't get other places. Again, at that $75 level, Friends of CITR card, and that gives you discounts all around the city at record stores, at restaurants, um, at, at a variety of different places across the city, um, and, and it's quite useful and it can certainly save you money. Um, at the one, $101.9 level, a Friends of CITR card, a Radioversary t-shirt, um, I just checked them out. They're awesome. Um, also a Pop Alliance um, LP. This is curated um, and released um, jointly by CITR Radio and Mint Records, uh, featuring wonderful local bands. Um, and this is um, just, I was just talking to one of the curators of this album, host of Dunkin's Donuts, uh, Duncan McHugh. Um, he helps curate this um, this Pop Alliance LP every year. It's vinyl, um, it's handmade, um, and a lot of love has gone into this. So it's a wonderful um, piece, and you will not be able to find this um, other places um, right now. So this is an exclusive way to get it. So again, by calling 604-822-8648, 604-822-8648. Again, 604-UBC-UNIT. At the $175 level, a Friends of CITR card, a Radioversary t-shirt, a Pop Alliance LP, and um, a Discorder calendar showcasing 30 years of Discorder magazine. Another great thing about CITR Radio is that we have a, a, a magazine um, to supplement our radio content. So it, it highlights a lot of local um, music, arts and culture, and um, the programming that occurs here on CITR. At the $250 level, two friends cards, a t-shirt, an LP, a calendar, and a tote bag. At the $500 level, two friends cards, two tees, t-shirts, an LP, a calendar, and two tote bags. And at the $750 level, everything that you heard, um, but doubled. So, and then up from there at the at the at the $1,000 level. So, this is a moment to show your support for independent programming, for independent content that doesn't find a place on the radio dial. Um, or other sources of media, print media, you don't find the type of programming um, like CITR, like campus and community radio in other places. And I just want to express, um, I walked in the doors to CITR a number of years ago. Uh, this, I think, was around 2009. And uh, ever since then, it's been a community. It's an empowering place to be. You get trained in media production. You get trained in um, everything about radio programming, and uh, it, it really supports the community in a vital way. So if you want to continue that and support more of this content, more of what CITR does, training, um, workshops, education around media, um, working towards democratic um, media, and every day we hear more about how media is being centralized in Canada, how media is owned by a smaller and smaller number of wealthier and wealthier media conglomerates, if you want to challenge that, if you want to hear something different on CITR, I, I urge you to call in 604-822-8648, 604-822-8648. Um, we're going to go to some content now. This is Harvey Mollich. He's a renowned urban sociologist, and he's talking about the social construction of cities. He's based out of uh, New York University. He's in uh, metropolitan studies, but um, has written extensively on urban sociology and um, 
and political economy, urban development, a lot of these themes. And he's going to talk about how cities are socially constructed and, and really laying some of the foundation for how we think about cities, how we examine them, how we analyze what goes on. So again, that number, please call in. Keep, keep those phones ringing, 604-822-8648, 604-822-8648. You're listening to The City here on CITR 101.9 FM. I'm Andy Longhurst, and now we're going to go to Harvey Molich. Uh, professor of sociology and metropolitan studies at New York University. And this is going back uh, to uh, looking back at 2012, some of the highlights from the last year. Um, first, I want to talk to you about um, your work on urban growth machines okay. and um, certainly has laid um, a, a rich foundation for a lot of thinking about property development and the politics around that in, in mm-hmm. cities. Um, and it's been a number of years since your book, Urban Fortunes, was published with John Logan. Mm-hmm. Um, how have, well, first of all, what's, what's your primary thesis or argument in Urban Fortunes, and how would you explain the urban growth machine? Yeah, so um, it began really when I was a graduate student uh, many years ago at the uh, University of Chicago, which is sort of the birthplace of a great deal of uh, urban geography, urban sociology, and that sort of thing, and founded as it was in the really 1930s, 1920s, 1930s, um, and then really be coming into its own in post-war 1950s period. It had a very scientific orientation, and uh, it was uh, it involved a search for what were uh, regarded as universal laws that could explain how cities grow and cities develop. Uh, And what I saw was that um, certain political and economic interests were not being accounted for. So, for example, you would never know from this uh, vein of work that there was such a thing as a real estate industry, Um, that that real estate industry, uh, uh, along with construction companies um, and... uh, uh, the people who make cement and uh, all of that uh, played a role in urban governance and in the outcome of city developments. They were just sort of treated as passive. If they were treated at all, they're mostly just not even treated at all. So what I did was uh, came to think that uh, these people are very active. In part, I thought that because of my own family. I grew up in the American East Coast and uh, well, there's just a lot of plain old corruption in running governments um, and bribes, and that was also completely invisible um, in these academic fields that I was studying. So I came to sort of um, think about um, th- that there's another side to this, and it involves the fact that I'll call them in general, in a generic way, real estate entrepreneurs and the people they support in political life um, have vested interests in how the city uh, evolves one way or the other. And they, um, they invest uh, their money, their time, their energy, uh, their charitable work, many, many things in order to have the city um, undergo a future that brings them uh, more substantial returns than they otherwise would get. So that's the point, is that when you look at the map of a city, it's not just roads and uh, highways and railroad tracks. It's also, I, I like to call it, a, a mosaic of interests. Uh, 
of people who have interests in specific parcels of land and also in the land overall. And the ones who, uh, for their overall interests, when they want the whole thing to grow so that they can make the most, um, and they want their city, their metropolitan area to grow compared to a a different one in Alberta or in Toronto or whatever, uh, I use the term growth machine to characterize those people and the apparatus they set up to fulfill these goals. You talk about the social construction of, of cities and of markets, and this is something that is in contrast with an uh, orthodox or a neoclassical um, economistic approach to um, urban development or um, uh, you know, the city in general. How, how would you characterize that social construction um, in the city, and who are those actors? You mentioned a few. Um, but how, what's that interplay like between all of these different actors? Well, one, one aspect of the social construction of the city and of the city as an economic functioning unit is that in the United States, certainly, and in many other places in the world, the um, uh, land and property is treated basically as a commodity. Now, this is not necessarily the way the world works in other places, and it isn't just in the Soviet Union where it isn't like that. It isn't like that, for example, in or hasn't been traditionally in Stockholm, where the government owned or controlled the vast majority of, of land. Um, in, in the Italian situation, which I know really quite a little, lot about because I've lived in Italy um, and worked with Italian colleagues, uh, the, the system is one in which the parties, the political parties, traditionally controlled land use and decided what would be put where. And so the way that you got a, a handle on that uh, as an actor in the system, uh, gained financial returns for your property, would be to work through the political party. Um, and in the United States, that's not the way it typically is. It doesn't matter who's in political control of a, of a particular jurisdiction. These interests that I referred to, the real estate interests, um, they'll work with whoever is uh, available, whoever they can uh, um, gain um, as part of their behalf. So anyway, in, in terms of talking about the social construction of the city, the, the, the thing to realize is that uh, there are interests in common that uh, that people have who have financial stakes in the outcome of development, and they structure the future of the city to fit that outcome. So rather than things uh, just being located where they're most efficient to be located, which is the way um, uh, official economics would uh, work it out, um, it's it's not that way because uh, people, uh, as a concrete thing that they decide whether the airport will be on the north side of the city or the south side of the city. How much subsidy will the city provide to create the airport um, in the future or to expand it? All of these decisions happen through people, in effect, getting together, which is another way of saying organizing things socially. And out of that, constructing what the urban economy will be. Because when you are deciding where infrastructure will be um, and how it will be allocated, you are determining the value of land, one one kind of land compared to another, 
and how people will be living, um, whether they'll need a car or they won't need a car, whether uh, they'll be living near their daughter on the south side of the city or, the, or not their daughter on the north side. Uh, these basic elements of life are determined through this process. A city, and more generally, any locality, is conceived as the aerial expression of the interests of some land-based elite. Such an elite is seen to profit through the increasing intensification of land use of the area in which its members hold a common interest. Conditions of community life are largely a consequence of the social, economic, and political forces embodied in this growth machine. And that's Harvey Mollich, professor of Metropolitan Studies and Sociology at, the, uh, at New York University. And uh, he's writing in an article, The City as a Growth Machine, and Professor Harvey Mollich has laid a lot of important groundwork in the ways that we theorize cities, the ways that we think about them, the way we understand why things happen the way they do. And this is just a taste of what you can expect on the city. Um, going to people and talking with a lot of these issues, exploring what the city is. Um, how do we think about it? How do we conceive of it? Um, what what are the, you know, who are the actors involved? Um, how do propertied interests or how do, you know, as he says, a land-based elite, um, how do they seek to benefit from forms of development or the ways the city is structured? These are the questions that we're exploring on the city every week. And um, if you support that type of content, if you want to hear more of it, if you want to uh, ensure that we keep um, this type of content and analysis and these critical discussions on the air, I want to urge you to support this program. Support CITR by calling 604-822-8648, 604-822-8648. Again, you can also donate online. Um, you won't be able to get a prize pack um, by donating donating online, um, but you can certainly do that as well. It's very easy. Go to citr.ca slash fundrive, um, F-U-N-D-R-I-V-E, and you can uh, select the city as the show you'd like to donate to. And that's going to help us get on our way to $30,000. We have a goal um, this year of raising $30,000. And we need more uh, boards, actually. So these are um, the on-air and studio boards um, that we use here at the station. Um, they're aging. They're falling apart. They're unpredictable. And we need to replace them. We're also moving to a new uh, station, um, a new building, the new student union building here at UBC um, with... Uh, and that's going to be in 2014, and so we need to raise the money now to ensure that when we move into that space, we can have new equipment um, that meets the demands of radio production um, by that time. Already our boards are aging, they're falling apart, and that $30,000 is going to help us get on our way. Uh, so we need to do this. Um, our, our boards also don't match each other. Um, so when we do trainings, and a big part of what CITR does is to train people in broadcasting, um, train people... Um, in ways to do broadcasting and community um, uh, media production um, without having to pay hundreds of dollars for courses um, at special schools or at universities or, or technical colleges. We do it right here, and we do it at a very um, on a shoestring budget at a very low cost, and that's what you're supporting by supporting CITR. You're supporting quality, independent programming, but at the same time, you're supporting education uh, for young people interested in media, um, for aspiring journalists, but also for people that want to be involved in their community, and they want to be involved through media production, um, through citizen journalism, um, through doing what I'm doing here. 
um, I come here, I volunteer, and I produce a program um, that I hope adds to the discussion. And I want to continue that discussion every week. But it's not possible if you don't donate to CITR. And that, that number again, 604-822-8648. 604-822-8648. Again, we need, we need your donations to keep coming in. We need to get to $30,000. Uh, right now, we're, we're not quite at $10,500. Uh, we only have a few days left to raise that $30,000. We need you to call in. Show that you support independent radio. Show that you want to see this continue. Um, again, I mentioned we are seeing media consolidation across this country. And uh, recent news today um, about more consolidation. So this is crucially important. Uh, this type of independent media and getting voices um, from the ground that aren't represented in corporate media, um, in even CBC, we need to get those voices on the air, um, get those voices out. We need to speak and we need to hear from the grassroots. We need people who are marginalized to be able to have a voice. And that's what community and campus radio can provide. 604-822-8648. 604-822-8648. Again, citr.ca slash fun drive. Please support this type of programming. Uh, this is content you are not going to find elsewhere. You don't find elsewhere. And we want it to continue. Please help us get to where we need to be. Again, 604 822 8648. And um, just before um, I started talking, we are hearing again from Professor Harvey Molich. Now I want to go to uh, Winifred Curran. And she is, um, or excuse me, Winifred Curran. Uh, she is a professor at um, DePaul University in Chicago. And she's talking about something that's very much in the news uh, right now. And that is uh, the gentrification of the downtown east side and how neighborhoods change. And um, Often we think of these sort of as inevitable processes, they're natural, they happen for certain reasons. Um, but a lot of the research in gentrification and a lot of the scholarship um, from uh, scholars like uh, Professor Curran is very much about how gentrification is a process that these landscapes are produced. Um, they're produced, as, as Harvey Mollich mentioned, produced by certain forces and interests that have, an, that have specific um, reasons for seeing the city change in certain ways, for neighborhoods seeing more condo developments, more development in general, different types of development, different types of people living in certain neighborhoods. And so uh, without any further ado, I'm going to go into uh, Professor Curran's um, short piece. This is, again, going back to a podcast um, from, I believe this is the early part of, or sorry, the, the, uh, the last few months of 2012 and uh, we had a, a, a wonderful discussion about um, industrial displacement within the context of neighborhood change and um, gentrification. So this is, again, uh, Professor Curran. I guess, first of all, um, what is gentrification and how would you um, explain, um, you know, a gentrification 101 to those unfamiliar with uh, those, those, uh, that process and sure. the, the pressures that it placed upon that industrial landscape? Yeah. In many ways, that's not an easy question because there's plenty of debate over what gentrification is. Um, for me, um, my definition of gentrification is the influx of upper income land uses into previously working class areas, resulting in the displacement of the original working class population. Um, and so that can be both a residential population or a business population like industrial businesses. Um, and so 
for me, what's important about gentrification is that it causes displacement. That's what makes gentrification gentrification. So I think for a lot of people unfamiliar with the term or perhaps only familiar with it in the, in the popular press, um, gentrification has come to be equated with any sort of urban redevelopment, any, any attempt to, to improve um, a neighborhood aesthetically or economically. Um, and I want people to understand in my geography, you know, sort of a gentrification 101, that what makes gentrification gentrification is not the development part, but the displacement part, right? That the, that the development that results from gentrification is predicated upon the displacement of working class populations who were there previously. Right. So, um, so for me, therefore, gentrification is something to be contested and fought against and not something to be welcomed. Um, development is something to be welcomed, right? Economic revitalization of neighborhoods that have been underserved is a wonderful thing. Um, doing that while at the same time displacing the people who suffered from, you know, the lack of city services and lack of economic opportunities doesn't in any way change the experience of those populations. And so to me, what's the point, right? What's, if, you can, if you are improving a place without improving the lives of the people who are in and of that place, then you haven't actually achieved very much of anything at all, to my mind. Mm -hmm. um, so that is my definition of gentrification, so, at which clearly it's a contested, very highly contested topic, mm -hmm. as is the explanation of why gentrification happens. So there are two kind of schools of thought on this, uh, a consumption side and a production side. And so the consumption side argument is that in the context of a changing global economy, in which you know globalization is our, our new sort of mode of production, um, the production has become much less important than services like finance, insurance, real estate, those sorts of things. Um, that this sort of new middle class, what David Lay, Canadian geographer David Lay, calls um, in the, the department I study in, <laughs> exactly, and, yeah. and you know who's who has done extraordinary work and really nuanced and sophisticated work, and I don't want to simplify his his argument in any way, um, but his phrase is the new middle class that these people are sort of want new and different things than the previous generation. You know, that, that, that the sort of the house in the suburbs with the white picket fence is not enough for them, that these are more um, sort of highly educated, cosmopolitan um, people who want the benefits of city living, who want the attractions, uh, you know, the cultural attractions, the amenities, the convenience of things like public transportation, um, the, you know, the hustle and bustle of the big city, and so therefore kind of, you know, rediscovering um, what the city has to offer. Um, and so it is this demand then, so the, the thought is that there is a demand for new types of housing, a demand for increased investment in inner city neighborhoods that had previously been um, disinvested from. So that's kind of one side of the mm -hmm. argument. The other side of the argument is that this is not about demand from a particular consumer base, but that these spaces are being actively produced by speculators, real estate developers, and urban governments um, in the search for profit. And that following suburban and even ex-urban um, development, that the, the sort of new frontier of profitability, in the language of Neil Smith, who is the, the major proponent of this argument in his theory on the rent gap, um, is that the next frontier for profitability was the inner city because of how thorough disinvestment had been in the 60s and 70s. Can you talk? And that, yeah. Sorry, go ahead. So, and that's sort of the, the greatest profit potential um, is in inner city neighborhoods because that's where the gap between the actual land use and the potential ground, uh, ground use is greatest. Right. right. right? That's, so you can develop anywhere, you know, to develop 
um, a new suburban community or to develop in, a, you know, an already, um, you know, well-established and well-regarded urban neighborhood, you can do that, but there's only so much profit you can make, right? You know, that's that market has been established. But if you are able to, you know, so-called rehabilitate an inner-city urban neighborhood and sort of create a market where none existed before, the profit potential there is enormous. And that that is what is driving gentrification is the search for profit. And where do you fall on this uh, on this debate? I fall on the rent gap side. I, right. <laughs> I am, um, and in fact, was educated in this. I had a class with Neil Smith when I was getting my master's degree, and mm-hmm. it completely opened my eyes. You yeah. know, and again, I have told people more than once that I feel like Neil taught me how to think, mm-hmm. um, because you know, sort of things that so much of what we kind of assume and what kind of becomes kind of naturalized in the way that we think cities work when you sort of see it explained the way he explains it and how he sort of you know tracks the development of places like New York it becomes quite clear that there's not you know that this is not an inevitable process right that there there are very powerful actors involved in the construction of the urban landscape Dr. Winifred Curran associate professor of geography at DePaul University in Chicago And uh, she's an urban geographer focusing on gentrification, urban change, labor geographies, and race and gender. And a lot of her work has looked at industrial displacement in uh, Brooklyn's Williamsburg neighborhood. And that's another thing that we do on the city is um, really making an attempt to um, both provide uh, a a lot of focus on Vancouver and the context in Vancouver um, of urban change, but also looking beyond Vancouver. And uh, it's certainly a challenge to provide uh, analysis and, and commentary and, and uh, programming on every city out there. Um, and certainly I do not, I, I'm not arguing that I do that or, or do that justice or am able to do that. Um, but that's something that I, I try to do. And I try to bring uh, those conversations onto the program and uh, always looking to improve that. And again, what I'm doing here is trying to bring programming that's both interesting but also I want to hear from you. I want to hear if this is stuff that you enjoy, um, if there's particular programming that you'd like to hear on the city um, that you're not going to hear somewhere else or that you think deserves an hour of discussion. And that's something that um, engaging with a number of different people and organizations and um, different, um, you know, things going on in the city, um, being very attentive to that and knowing what's going on and taking, um, taking advice for programming from different people. And I really make an effort to do that. And I hope that's something that um, you're willing to support and that you see is worth supporting. And you can do that by calling 604-822-8648, 604-822-8648. Again, this is our, our annual funding drive. We only ask you once a year, um, to, to dig deeply and um, show how much you appreciate independent, alternative, critical, uh, unique programming. It's eclectic. I'm here um, there on Tuesdays. I go right before um, a hardcore show, a metal show. This is programming that's eclectic, um, and, and we're attempting to reach out to different audiences, um, audiences that are not, um, are not necessarily – they're not getting the content that represents their interests on commercial radio, on CBC – 
And uh, that's something that we really pride ourselves on. We pride ourselves on that community-based programming where different programmers uh, are speaking to their respective communities. But also the beauty of radio is that you get a bit of taste of everything else that's going on. You get to hear the Leo Ramirez show. You get to hear what's going on in Latin America. You get to hear uh, what's the latest off of uh, the playlist charts here at CATR on the Discord or radio show. You get a taste of all of that. And... I think that's what's really, really awesome about CATR, and I really want to encourage you to support that because I think it would be it would be a real loss if we didn't have that in Vancouver. So again, 604-822-8648. And I just want to say um, with uh, Professor Curran, we heard about a lot of these processes. And again, that was a podcast going back to December 5th of 2012, looking at urban economies and looking at, looking at what are the futures or, or what are, are there, is there one singular future for, for North American cities? Or are there many futures? Are there many ways to economically develop? Um, what is the future of work in the urban economy? So that was a series um, still ongoing called The Working City, uh, looking at urban economies and how uh, cities uh, develop economically. And now I want to go to a clip. Uh, this is with uh, Daniel Zuberi. He's associate professor at the University of Toronto now, formerly at the, at the University of British Columbia, also a sociologist. And his work has looked at policy issues and policy differences between um, cities like Vancouver and Seattle and how different policies, both at, at different scales, urban um, and state or provincial and also federal um, shape different social outcomes in those in those respective places. So I want to go into that. Um, again, this is also a podcast uh, going back from, to January 8th of this year, 2013, Differences That Matter, Social Policy and Quality of Life in U.S. and Canadian Cities, and how do we improve the conditions for working people and the working poor, and why um, are policy interventions of particular kinds incredibly important for that. So again, we're going to go into this quickly. And again, that number 604-822-8648-604-822-8648. You can also donate online www.citr.ca slash fund drive. Again, 604-822-8648. Really need to have those calls coming in. We're trying to reach $30,000. We're just over a third of our way. Uh, We don't have a lot of time left. Um, and that's why we need you to call in. We don't want you to wait to the last minute. We want you to do it now. Uh, pick up that phone, 604-822-8648. Again, this is The City here on CATR 101.9 FM. Uh, we're live here Monday um, instead of Tuesday, the normal uh, programming time. Uh, News 101 has uh, graciously allowed me to broadcast on this time due to a live broadcast tomorrow. I want to thank them. Um, I also want to thank... Um, Michael, Mia, Sean, and an anonymous donor uh, for for showing their support, for making that pledge, for making um, making it clear that they support this type of programming. They support independent media. They support independent radio, and they want to see it continue. They appreciate these discussions. They appreciate the music, um, the alternative discussions, the critical discussions, the analysis that you don't get on certain shows, on CBC, on on uh, certain shows, on talk radio. Um, these are the programs that we want to support here on CITR. 604-822-8648. We're going to go now to Daniel Zuberi. Some of your um, past uh, work on uh, hospital workers and the privatization and outsourcing of those workers 
and uh, tell me a little bit about um, where the inspiration for that research came from and and uh, bring it down to the Vancouver context. Great. My first book looked at um, Differences That Matter, looked at the experiences of hotel workers who work as room attendants and other kind of lower-end jobs at, at two matched hotel chains that have branches in both Seattle and Vancouver. And through the study, I really explored how the, the differences in the social policy context between Canada and the U.S., B.C. and Washington State, um, played out to, to impact the quality of life and levels of hardship experienced by these workers. And what I found um, is that the workers here in Vancouver were, were much better off. In fact, some of them had used, um, th their jobs were much more likely to be unionized. They um, were more likely to earn a living wage. Um, and over time, workers working um, as room attendants in hotels here were able to pool their savings, were able to purchase homes in middle-class communities, um, and all in all described their lives as... Um, you know, being quite happy and content with their life. And uh, this was in direct contrast in Seattle, where people suffered from um, much higher levels of insecurity. Um, they were earning lower wages. They had weaker benefits. Um, some of them had lost their life savings due to health incidents. Um, many of them were, were working multiple jobs. They were worried about how they were going to make ends meet. Um, and so, so in my book, I sort of really lay out the various pathways by which um, the policy differences play out to make a big difference for, for these hotel workers. Um, but over time, I think Canada has moved um, more in the, the U.S. direction in terms of most policies, and, um, and we see that now Canada has some of the fastest-growing inequality in the OECD, among OECD countries. Um, and I find that this, we've also seen policy reductions. Many of the very policies that I point to in my book, Differences That Matter, um, that are really important for explaining why immigrants are, are doing better or have done better here um, as compared to in Seattle, have been eroded or or retrenched, and these include things like training policies, um, the generosity of unemployment insurance, um, other kind of key programs with the that minimum wage stagnated over the last decade until recently, um, and even more interestingly, I think that there's been an active assault on some of the, the very foundations of the, the middle class, and one of the biggest that I would point to is this neoliberal turn to um, public-private partnerships and um, and outsourcing. Now, most people think of outsourcing as sending jobs overseas to Mexico, and um, and and certainly that's been happening a lot, and that's been gutting the economies of of, of U the U.S. and Canada um, through NAFTA and other kinds of trade agreements. But there's also a different kind of outsourcing, and it's an outsourcing that um, is where big institutions such as government turn to the private sector to um, to to handle. Um, certain sort of tasks that were formerly done by by in-house employees, and um, I f was first brought to the attention of the case of of hospital workers um, in Vancouver and in BC uh, through a report called "Pains of Privatization" that was published by the Canadian Center for Policy Alternative. And, ba and based on an interview with a small number of these workers, um, these the the report really clearly presented the devastating consequences of outsourcing and and, and privatization um, for these workers and their lives, and um, when I started to study this issue more, I actually came to find out that that the privatization and outsourcing of hospital cleaners in Vancouver represents the largest public sector privatization in the history of Canada. And I think that this story is one that's really important and needs to be told because the, the devastating consequences not only for these families and for the, um, and their children and these, wor these workers and their families and their children, um, we also see broader negative consequences in terms of the quality of health care, um, and I would also argue the, the risk of um, acquiring a hospital-acquired infection. 
Where's the money? CITR. You want that money? CITR. Where's the money? CITR. Where's the money? CITR. Where's the f***ing money? CITR. The 2013 CITR Fund Drive is from February 28th to March 8th. Our goal is to raise $30,000 bills to help get new soundboards in all three of our studios. This means we need help from listeners just like you. To donate, call 604-822-8648. That's 604-822-8648. Or go online to citr.ca and help support the station you love. The Study and Go Abroad Fair is proud to support CITR's fund drive from February 26th to March 8th. The fair is a great opportunity for anyone considering studying, volunteering, working, or traveling abroad. Exhibitors will include universities from around the world and student travel organizations. The Study and Go Abroad Fair happens Tuesday, March 5th from 3pm to 7pm in the East Ballroom of the Vancouver Convention Centre. All visitors will also be entered in a grand draw with prizes including a trip on Air Canada, a volunteer trip in Nicaragua or Nepal, and an iPad. CITR will also be doing a live broadcast from the fair with interviews, demos, and more. For more information, go to studyandgoabroad.com. With the vast amount of changes happening in the world, it's almost impossible to get a clear picture of what's really going on. We are trapped within the logic of capitalism, leaving us unable to imagine what comes next. The Extra Environmentalist brings the perspectives of people who can see the whole picture and are ready for whatever comes our way. Tune in to the Extra Environmentalist every Wednesday from 2 to 3 p.m. on CITR 101.9 FM. This is the viewpoint that makes all places the same to you. And I'm Andy Long here, Sits of the City here on CITR 101.9 FM, CITR.ca, and available as a podcast at thecityfm.org. And this is a special fun drive uh, show. And I want to urge you to call in. We've got 10 minutes left in the show. Call 604-822-8648, 604-822-8648, and support CITR. Support the programming that you're hearing. We just heard from Daniel Zubiri talking about the policy differences that matter. Um, and, you know, these are the conversations that I want to bring on air um, for us to have out there, for us to be able to discuss. Um, and these are some of the leading scholars and thinkers on a number of these issues. And a lot of them are calling for change. They're calling for progressive change um, to improve urban life. And that's something that I want to bring uh, to, uh, to air um, as a podcast um, live. And it's something that I think, you know, I think we really need. And it's something that I hope you will, you will support with me. Um, and that number, again, please, any amount helps. Um, you know, I know I'm, I'm a student. Um, I don't have a lot of money, but I know that sometimes when things matter to me, I'm able to give that money. Um, and it doesn't have to be a lot. Um, but any amount helps, and it continues. It allows us to continue what we're doing. Um, and it just it, it really, it really shows that there are a lot of people out there that care about this content and this programming and what CITR does. And that's really what we want to see. We want to see that people in the community share the values that we do and really um, want to see more of this programming. They want to support it. Um, and again, uh, we have a lot of wonderful prize packs out there um, starting at the $30 level, but you need not uh, give that much. 
Um, if that's too much, um, you can also get tax receipts for all your donations. So again, there are lots of incentives uh, to donate to help you um, pick up the phone. Again, that number 604-822-8648, 604-822-8648. Please call in. We've got only got about eight minutes left. And I want to now go to, we did a a podcast back in July of 2012, uh, From Poor to Yuppie, Artists, Boutiques, and Neighborhood Change. And this was um, quite a, uh, an extensive analysis of the role that artists um, and boutiques and retail outlets or, or uh, stores play uh, in neighborhoods that are working class or low income. And, and whether the artists, um, you know, what obligations or responsibilities the artist has in neighborhoods. They're often seen as, you know, the first wave um, putting in, into motion gentrification and, and really thinking about this. But again, the analysis was not saying, you know, artists are the problem, but really how are, how are, how are artists implicated in these processes? And, and in doing so, um, talked with a number of people. We heard from Dr. Sharon Zukin, a sociology professor in Brooklyn, uh, at the City, City University of New York. We also heard from uh, Tara Hogue, a curator at the GAM Gallery in the downtown east side. Uh, Richard Neuwirth, Director of Cultural Services at the City of Vancouver. As well, um, we heard uh, from uh, from Harvey Molich and also from Wendy Peterson, a downtown east side activist. And I want to go to that clip because one of the things that the city can provide is also um, hearing from people on the ground, working for, for progressive change and... Um, I think that's something that's really important. We hear a lot about um, discussions around uh, gentrification or whatever it might be, but a lot of the times we don't allow activists or people working on a lot of these issues to have the space to articulate some of these concerns, and they don't fit within two-minute sound bites. And that's often what what corporate media only allows for because it only fits within their framework. If it doesn't fit within two minutes and you can't explain the complicated nature of some of these issues, uh, then it's not fit to go on air or it's, or, you know, we'll, we'll go, we'll essentially roll right over the issue because it doesn't fit in that, in that sexy soundbite or something that's easy, easily digested. So I want to go to Wendy Peterson um, from this clip uh, with the Carnegie uh, Community Action Project. And this, again, was a podcast from July 2012. Um, I wanted to ask you um, on a somewhat of a separate topic, um, Mm -hmm. doing some uh, interviews with um, folks that are doing um, running art galleries and boutiques and um, cultural spaces in the downtown east side. Do you, what's the Carnegie's position on this? Because it's certainly, we're seeing, um, it's not, it's not new, but we're certainly seeing um, an incursion of, of boutiques and art spaces and um, um, stores that are not necessarily accessible to the downtown east side, um, low income neighborhood. Yeah, we're definitely against all forms of gentrification, including retail, artists, and boutique spaces, uh, because it create they create places where low-income people can't aren't can't participate in the economy, and also create um, places where people feel excluded and um, don't contribute benefit the low-income community at all so we're we're we but but we would um 
We would be okay maybe with some, but not until after we secure the tenure and the assets of the low-income community. Otherwise, it just is unfair and disrespectful. Yeah. It's a... There's no plan to preserve the housing here. Then we're welcoming new people into the community that is, you know, being demolished. Yeah. Well, what's your <laughs> what's your take? I I spoke with Ivan a while back, but what's your take on the way that um, uh, sequel one thirty eight and um, the language around um, artists and this is you know really essentially a divide and conquer strategy by um, the developer to use artists as um, to, to use their you know support for the project and and rally people around that. Well, I guess I I don't believe that he has support from the artist the existing artist community in mm -hmm. the in the downtown east side the low income artist community. Mm -hmm. He doesn't have support. He mm -hmm. doesn't have that support. And I think most of the art groups in the neighborhood have um, signed on against it. Yeah. And don't want to be used in that way. I think the main problem is until we get our housing, people are there's going to be a lot of bitterness and a lot of um, uh, pushback and a lot of fighting. Yeah. What are? What's, and if, if miraculously, if the the city and the senior government could build five thousand units of social housing to replace our hotels. I think, uh, and if that was a for sure plan, and if they did other improvements to the neighborhood to make it safe for women and comfortable for Aboriginal people, and or as or or um, safer for Aboriginal people, and um, took took the low income community's needs seriously, then I don't think we would be in this battle. Mm -hmm. And maybe there would be some room for some higher end stuff, but not until we have our. How do you? First. Yeah. Just going back to all of the um, boutiques and art spaces that um, have popped up in recent years in the downtown east side, mm -hmm. that are not um, many of them not political um, in a way that they are there to stand in solidarity um, and oppose gentrification like in the what? neighborhood. Sorry? Like which places? Oh, like the, we've had a number of boutique um, stores open on Columbia. Um, yeah. That stretch. I, I guess my question is, how? What's, what is the message to people and how do we engage in a discussion mm -hmm. when for them it's a, it's a unique opportunity and it's sort of portrayed as an emerging neighborhood? Um, mm -hmm. even though yeah. they may not realize that they're playing a part in a larger scheme or a larger process, which makes mm -hmm. the neighborhood more, um, more aesthetically pleasing for higher income groups to want to move in there. How do, how do we, how do we talk about that? Oh, I don't know. <laughs> um, I guess, um, well, I guess people need to learn what gentrification is. And they need to be in solidarity with low-income people. And they have to talk about class. <laughs> yeah. It's not easy for everybody to do.
and artists need to understand that they, although we appreciate, we know that low-income artists and low-income students and low-income workers need housing in this neighborhood too. It shouldn't be at the expense of other people. Mm-hmm. And this is the city, and we're out of time. Um, and I want to call you and urge you, you've got a minute uh, before the city ends. Please call in 604-822-8648, 604-UBC-UNIT, 604-822-8648. Support the kind of programming that you don't hear other places. Support critical urban discussions on CATR. We've got Neil's Hidden Tracks coming up next after that Exploding Head movies. A lot of great content here on CITR. Support independent media, support independent radio, support what you hear on CITR again, 604-822-8648. And I want to thank for all of those um, who have donated. Thank you so much. Um, And um, please continue to support CITR and um, support this type of content. Again, 604-822-8648. My name's Andy Longers. This is The City, and we're here Tuesdays, um, not, this, uh, not, not this week, but Tuesdays 5 to 6 p.m., and uh, also syndicated on CJSF and also at the cityfm.org. I'm Andy Longhurst. Again, thank you so much for supporting this program, supporting this station. Get in your call, 604-822-8648. We'll be back next week, next Tuesday, six, uh, next Tuesday 5 p.m. with more critical urban discussions. Here at CITR, we're... Moontan Nocturnal, vinyl-consuming animals drifting easy through friendly space. And we're... The villains. And... Nardwar to human serviette from Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada.